Healthy Hacker, Episode 3. Welcome to the Healthy Hacker, where we talk about programming, puzzles, memory, fitness, diet, and everything else that you, a healthy hacker, find interesting. I'm Chris Hunt, and today is going to be fun because we got our very first voicemail. I also get to explain why I do and don't use a standing desk, and I brush up on my math skills to show why solving a Rubik's Cube will never, ever be boring. Also, just a couple announcements. That is one, the show is now on iTunes. So if iTunes is your thing, you can do that thing now. And the really cool status board that I use to watch you people watch the show is now open sourced, GitHub slash Chris Hunt slash status board. And I'll have a link to both of those things in the show notes. So first, let's get on with the workout of the week. The workout of the week is a workout I've done recently that I really liked. And I'm just going to share it with you and hopefully you get a chance sometime this week or in the future, whatever, to try it out yourself. So today uh, is a workout that you're either going to really love or really hate. All you got to do is run four miles. That's it. So if you're a runner and you're thinking, man, four miles, that's nothing. I'm running farther right now. Well, that's great. But that probably means you're not running fast enough. I guarantee it that no matter how good a shape you're in, if you run fast enough, when you get to the end of four miles, you're going to be dead. So if you're the kind of person that loves to run and four miles seems like nothing to you, then try running way faster. So by the time you get to that four mile mark, you're totally dead and you're going to love this workout. If the thought of running four miles sounds completely impossible to you, if the thought of running one mile sounds completely impossible to you, then this workout is going to be absolutely amazing. Because the more we do things that make us uncomfortable, especially when it comes to exercise, the faster we're going to see whatever results it is we're looking for. We're going to get stronger faster. We're going to get faster faster. We're going to get whatever whatever your goals are with exercise, you're going to reach them faster if you're doing things that you're uncomfortable doing. So for a lot of people, that's running. Because running sucks. It takes a lot of work to get your body used to the process of running. If this sounds like you and you know as soon as you go outside and start running or go on the treadmill and start running, you're going to just be dead after five minutes, then you should try the run-walk method. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes, but this is extremely popular, especially for half marathons and marathons and even longer runs than that. It's designed to help anybody go really long distances without killing themselves. And you can slowly decrease the amount that you walk But either way, you're going to be able to finish four miles and you're going to feel amazing when you get done. And the next time you try to do it, you'll be able to do it even faster. So totally check it out. Try not to run less than four miles because I know that even with the run-walk method, you can do it. Give it a shot. When I tried this yesterday outside in the amazing Portland 90-degree weather, it took me 25 minutes and 40 seconds. So good luck, have a good time, and run fast. So today's pretty special. Because someone was brave enough and called in and left a voicemail, which I think is amazing. And that voicemail is from Scott Moots. You can find him on Twitter, at Scott Moots. And Moots is spelled M-U-C. He has a question about standing desks. I tend to like to switch my position when I'm programming from like sitting or sort of pacing back and forth. And there's like a market for standing desks that are quite expensive. 
I've also made standing desks out of milk crates and boxes and sort of adjusted it to how I see, see fit. I was, I was wondering if you could say some pointers about what you should be cognizant about, about when you're designing your own standing desk and if it really is a good thing to be doing to be standing. Because I've heard things about standing all day is bad, um, sitting all day is bad. So what's, what's the balance between uh, changing positions throughout the day? Thanks. Great question. And I had the same question six months ago when I was looking for a desk. And the thing is, if you Google this, which I did, obviously, there's a bunch of contradicting information. Everybody definitely agrees that sitting all day is bad. It's bad for your joints. It's bad for your muscles. It's bad for your back. Some say even the process of sitting down just shuts off all of your fat-absorbing enzymes. You instantly gain weight just by sitting down. And exercising even for an hour a day doesn't offset this. You shave years off your life. You're more than 18% likely to die of diabetes. And by simply standing up at a desk, you mitigate all those things and burn 300 calories a day. And, and if you look at the slogan of any website that sells a standing desk, it's something like, live a longer, healthier life. You know, it's, it's very happy and rosy. There's also other benefits to standing that aren't necessarily health-related. And a great TED Talk on this is called Your Body Language Shapes Who You Are. And this is a, just about the idea that the way that you stand and the way that you position your arms and your legs and your body, and, and depending on how open or closed your posture is, has a great impact on how you behave and how confident you are and how you interact with people. So, just the process of standing tall at your desk with your arms out and getting work done makes you more confident and more productive and more assertive. And I mentioned the TED Talk, I, but I also got this tip from uh, a friend, Ben Ornstein, who does something similar to this before he gives a talk at like a Ruby conference. He'll go to the back of the room, maybe where people can't see him and get really big and spread his arms out wide and just turn into as big of a monster as you can to like just make yourself confident and ready to go, you know, because you got to get up in front of a bunch of people and put on a show. So so that's another reason why standing at a desk is good. It just changes the way you think about yourself in your day and does all these crazy things subconsciously. So let's say you've drank the standing desk Kool-Aid and you want to get a standing desk now. What kind of stuff should you be looking for when you buy or build a standing desk? Well, the most important thing is going to be the height of the desk. Now, it, this is obviously a personal thing, but the vast majority of people agree that your elbow should be about 90 degrees when you're typing on your keyboard. So you want a standing desk where when you rest your hands on the keys, your elbows are about 90 degrees. A little less, a little more is okay. Obviously for comfort, it doesn't really matter. The other thing you want to pay attention to is your feet. So I like to, I, I did drink the Kool-Aid and I do work from a standing desk. I just prefer it to sitting and I like to work barefoot. I find it a lot easier to keep balance and I, I'm moving back and forth and moving my feet a lot and I, I, you know, I don't get weird hot spots from shoes. There's also nice standing mats you can get. I don't use a standing mat, but if standing for long periods of time makes you uncomfortable, you might try a mat. These are real popular in retail stores for people that stand all day long. You can get these really nice mats that are made of gel and it feels really amazing if you work barefoot. As far as the desk itself, you don't actually need to spend... $1,500 or $2,000. Now, Scott mentioned that, you know, there's definitely a huge market for these things, and that's true. I've, I've seen them all, and I like them. But the interesting thing about these desks is they're built around the idea that you want to move your desk up and down. So they all have motors or hydraulics or some kind of 
thing built into the legs that makes it really easy to lift your desk up to a standing height or bring it back down to a sitting height or bring it kind of in the middle so you can maybe work with another person or move stuff around. You can dial in presets. So you just need to press like a single button to raise the desk up to a standing height and then a single button to lower it back down to the preset that you've set for, for sitting. And that's really convenient. The desk I'm thinking of right now is called the Next Desk, and it's $1,500. And it's probably the best desk I've seen that does this movement and has presets. And it's really smooth. It has these like soft giving motors. So if you have a cup of coffee or soup or something on your desk and you press the button, you're, you don't got to worry about spilling anything. It starts really slow and then speeds up and then slows down again once it gets to the top. So it's really convenient. The presets let you just dial in the settings and then easily move from sitting to standing back to sitting again. But all you really need is a stool. If you really want to sit down, if you get tired of standing and now you want to sit down again, just get a stool that's the correct height. I never understood why people need to move their desk up and down when you can just get a chair that's the correct height for the desk. Now, maybe some might say, well, I like this fancy chair that I use that's really comfortable, And uh, but for me, a stool is just fine. So that's what I have. I have a desk. It doesn't move. It's not fancy. It's not sold as a standing desk. It's just a desk that happens to be the perfect height off the ground, and then I have a stool that I can sit on if my feet get really tired, or if I want to relax or eat lunch and watch something on YouTube or whatever. It's, it's perfect. I don't need to move the desk. It doesn't cost nearly as much as these other desks that are designed for raising and lowering themselves. And I still have the option of sitting. A third way of getting a standing desk, and and Scott mentioned this in the voicemail, is just to build it. We all have boxes laying around, shipping boxes or laptop boxes. You stack enough of them, you can probably get your laptop up to the right height so that you can stand and use it. And then when you're done, just get rid of the boxes and sit back down again. I've tried this before, but it doesn't really work for me. The biggest problem I have with using boxes is that it just looks horrendous. And I really like to have like a good looking workspace. Boxes drive me nuts. As a temporary solution, it is amazing if you're working at somebody else's house or at a different office and they don't have a standing desk ready to go. That's when it's great to bust out the boxes because you can just build a desk, work there for a couple hours and then break it down again. But if you work in an office or I work from home, it's not doesn't make a very good long-term solution because you got to look at it all the time. And it really doesn't cost that much money to get a table that's the correct height. Like I said, you don't need to get a fancy standing desk. Just get something that's the right height and then a stool so you can sit down if you want to. Or when you sit, go to a different place. Sit down outside, at a lunch table, whatever. Maybe find a different spot to sit down. You don't need to use the same table. Now, all that said, I actually don't recommend getting a standing desk unless you like standing. Because standing all day is not better for you than sitting all day. The reason why people recommend standing and the reason why people recommend standing desks is because most people, when they move to a standing desk, they start moving more throughout the day. You know, they'll walk back and forth at their desk or they'll be more inclined to leave and go get a snack or they'll maybe work with more people because there's a little bit more room on the desk to set another laptop down or something like that. So the actual standing is not what's making you more healthy. It's that you're moving more. So if a standing desk is super comfortable for you, and it happens to be comfortable for me, then definitely get a standing desk because you're going to be there all day, so you might as well be as comfortable as you can be. But don't think that just by standing at a standing desk, you're going to be healthier or it's going to be better for you than sitting all day. It's exactly the same. Now, one trick I use to kind of help me get that movement in throughout the day is I like to just take a normal size Nalgene, a one liter Nalgene, and just fill it with water 
and then just keep sipping water from that thing every few minutes throughout the day. Has a couple benefits. One, I'm super hydrated, right? But the other benefit is I always have to go to the bathroom. So at least once an hour, sometimes more than once an hour, I'm forced to leave my desk, go use the restroom, then I can fill my Nalgene back up again, and then come back to my desk and work for another hour. So I'm kind of forcing myself to get that movement in, and at the same time, staying super hydrated. And that's all I have to say about standing desks. The big things to keep in mind are you want them at the right height, 90 degrees. If you want to have a seating option, you don't need a moving desk. You don't need to be able to move it up and move it down. You just need a bench that you can slide under the desk and sit down in that gives you a comfortable seated position. Or you can go work from somewhere else. And remember, you don't actually need a standing desk unless you like standing because it's not any better than sitting. Thank you so much, Scott, for the question. And if anybody else wants to leave a voicemail, head to healthyhacker.com slash voicemail. I'm really into puzzles, mostly like physical puzzles that you turn with your hands, Rubik's Cubes, Professor's Cubes, Magic Cubes, Pyraminks, Megaminks. These are all fun puzzles that you turn and they get all scrambled and then you have to unturn them and bring them back to the solved position. The one that I'm most interested in, though, is definitely the Rubik's Cube. And this started with me 10 years ago, freshman year of college, in a physics class when I met this guy that can solve the cube in a minute and a half. And it became an immediate addiction to me. And I learned how he solved it. I went on the internet. At the time, all there was was a Yahoo email group. And there were maybe 30 people in there. It wasn't super popular. But that was the place to go if you were interested in solving the Rubik's Cube quickly. And everybody talked about all the methods they use and all the algorithms they use. And I just tried to soak up as much of that stuff as I could until eventually when I was graduating from college, I was super competitive. I averaged about 16 seconds on the Rubik's Cube. You can put it in any configuration and I can get it back to solved in 16 seconds or less. And nowadays, I'm not quite as competitive. I've slowed down. I'm about 18 or 19 seconds, but it's still a huge part of my life. And it's still something that I bring with me everywhere. And I'm kind of always thinking about it or connecting things to the Rubik's Cube or talking about it if somebody wants to talk about it with me. So it's definitely going to be a reoccurring thing on this podcast. But a question I get whenever I first meet somebody and I start talking to them about the cube is, doesn't it get boring? Isn't it kind of always the same? Like you just learn some algorithms, somebody scrambles it, and then you do the algorithms and it's solved. But it's totally not boring. It's actually different every time. And the chances of it even being remotely similar to a previous solve is almost zero. There are so many positions on the cube that it will never, ever, ever be boring for anybody that wants to keep solving it over and over and over again. So today, we're going to put our math hats on, and we're going to calculate how many positions there are on the Rubik's Cube, just so that we can fully understand this crazy number, because it's kind of mind-blowing. Before we do that, we need to learn a couple basic concepts, so we can do that with marbles. Let's say you have two marbles in front of you, and you're just messing around with them on the table. One is red, and one is green, and you're trying to put them in a line. How many possible positions can you make with those marbles. You can put the red one first, right? Or you can put the green one first. So you have two possible positions. It's pretty easy. Now, what if I give you a third marble, say a blue marble, how many positions can you do now? Well, you can actually 
base it off of the previous number. So if we take that third marble and just start setting it down on the table, we have three different places we can put it. We can either put it to the left of the first two marbles, we can put it to the right of the first two marbles, or we can put it right in the middle of the first two marbles. And each of those three positions we can do for every one of the two positions that we can do with the first two marbles. So that means with three marbles, we can do three times two positions. So three times the previous number of positions. So three times two is six. Now let's say we add a fourth marble. So we have our three marbles sitting on the table. We can do the same thing we just did, and we can take that fourth marble and either put it in the beginning of those set of three, or we can put it at the end of the set of three, or we can slide it in between the second and third marble, or we can slide it in between the third and the fourth marble. So just like the last set, we now have four possible positions that we can place that fourth marble. And each of those positions can be done for every one of the positions that we had with three marbles. So we have four times whatever the previous number of positions were for the marbles. So we have four times six, which we can also write as four times three times two times one. Now let's take five marbles and the same thing applies. The number of possible positions for our five marbles is gonna be five times four times three times two times one. And same with six and same with seven. In fact, given any number of marbles, the number of possible positions is gonna be that number times that number minus one, that number minus two, that number minus three. Well, this principle in math is called factorial. So three factorial is three times two times one, or six. So the number of positions for four marbles is four factorial, or four times three times two times one. So those positions, in math we would call permutations, and a permutation is just one configuration of a set of things. So four marbles has four factorial permutations, or four factorial positions. Got it? Okay, that is a permutation. That's concept number one. Super easy. So now we can take anything in the world, anything, and be able to tell somebody how many permutations there are for that thing because we do factorial. So now let's move on to the next concept. Let's say instead of marbles, we're dealing with coins. So they're almost exactly the same as our marbles. The only difference, though, is a coin has an orientation. If I have two coins sitting on the table in front of me, I already know that there are two factorial different positions, or two times one, right? I can put one coin first, or I can put the other coin first. But what happens if I flip one of the coins over? Well, that's technically a different position. But it's not a different permutation because I didn't physically move the coins to a different location. I just changed the orientation. I flipped them over. So now we have two coins that can each face two different directions, heads up or heads down. How do we calculate the total number of positions? Well, we can calculate the number of orientations first. So the way to do that is to take one coin and ask yourself, how many orientations does this one coin have? Well, a coin only has two. It has heads or tails. The next question you can ask is, how many total coins do we have? 
So in the case of what we're dealing with here, we only have two coins. So we have two coins that can each be in two different orientations. So the total number of orientations that we have, the total possible number of orientations is two times two, which we can also write as two squared or two to the second power. So if we have three coins, we can do the same thing. Each coin still only has two possible orientations, but now we have three coins. So the total number of orientations for three coins is gonna be two times two times two, or two to the third power. And let's add two more coins, so now we have five total coins. It's the same exact thing. Each still has two orientations, but now we have five coins, so now it's two to the fifth power. And we can continue to do this forever. So given n items, the number of orientations for all of those items is gonna be the number of orientations for a single item to the power of n. So if we have five coins that each have two orientations, then the total number of orientations for all the coins is two to the fifth power. Make sense? So now we know everything we need to know to calculate the total number of positions for anything. So going to our coin example, how many total positions do we have for a set of five coins? We know how to calculate the permutations and we know how to calculate the number of orientations. So now we just multiply those together to get the total number of positions. So for five quarters, we have five factorial different positions, five times four times three times two times one, and we have two to the fifth power possible orientations. So the total number of positions for a set of five quarters is five factorial times two to the fifth. Ta-da! Done with quarters. Now we can figure it out for a Rubik's Cube using the exact same rules. If you have a Rubik's Cube nearby, which you probably don't, but let's say you do, feel free to take it out and follow along. But a Rubik's Cube has two different types of pieces. It has corner pieces and it has edge pieces. There are eight corner pieces and there are 12 edge pieces. So we'll take each of those two types of pieces separately and then calculate the total number of positions on the Rubik's Cube. So we'll start with the corners. Eight corners. How many permutations do we have for eight things? Eight factorial. So the total number of permutations for the corners is eight factorial. Now, if you look at a corner piece, so maybe you see a picture online you can look at, I'll, po I'll post a, a link in the show notes, you'll see that a corner piece on a Rubik's Cube has three stickers. That means it has three possible orientations. So using our formula that we already came up with for orientation, we know that to calculate the total number of orientations for a set of things, we take the total number of orientations for one of them and raise it to the power of how many things there are. So for a corner piece, we have three stickers. So that means we have three possible orientations. And we have eight corners. So the total number of orientations for the corners on a Rubik's Cube is three to the eighth power. So now that we know the total number of permutations and the total number of orientations for the corners, we can just set that aside and save it for later. So now let's look at the edge pieces. Like I said earlier, there are 12 edge pieces on the Rubik's Cube, which means to calculate the total number of permutations, we just do 12 factorial. Done. Now we can move on to orientation. 
looking at a edge piece, it's different than a corner piece because it only has two stickers. So that means a corner piece only has two orientations, just like our coins. So if we want to figure out the total number of orientations for all of the edge pieces, we take two and raise it to the power of 12, the total number of pieces. So now we've calculated the total number of positions for just the edge pieces. It's going to be 12 factorial times 2 to the 12. So putting that all together now, we take the total number of corner positions and multiply it by the total number of edge positions to get the total number of positions for the Rubik's Cube. So we'll start with the corners. It's going to be 8 factorial times 3 to the 8th power times 12 factorial times 2 to the 12th power. But there's one fatal assumption we made. And we didn't need to think about this with the quarters. But that total number of positions we calculated makes the assumption that we can just take the cube apart and put it together in whatever position we want. That number is the total number of positions that we can physically place these pieces without even considering the fact that it's a puzzle, right? We're just thinking about, oh, we can just take the puzzle apart and assemble it in whatever position we want. Well, you can't do that. That's not allowed. A Rubik's Cube only allows you to turn it a certain way, right? You can only turn the left side, or you can only turn the right side, or you can only turn the top or the bottom. There are actually a lot of positions in that set that we calculated that aren't reachable by using the Rubik's Cube the way it was designed. In fact, only one in 12 of every position is reachable by turning the sides of the Rubik's Cube. So we can take that number that we came up with, 12 factorial times two to the 12th, times eight factorial times three to the eighth, and divide that by 12, and that is the total number of legal positions on the Rubik's Cube, positions that are reachable by actually turning the sides of the cube. And you can actually use that to your advantage if you wanna play a trick on somebody and you can pop one piece out of the cube and flip it over and put it back in again and now that cube cannot be solved ever again unless you take it apart. So if we do the math and actually write this number down, we're gonna come up with 43 quintillion legal positions for the Rubik's Cube, which is a huge number. I can't even comprehend this number. So I have kind of something to help us. And that is, if you were to take a Rubik's cube, one Rubik's cube for every position that's possible on the, on the cube and set it down on the ground. So we got a bunch of cubes on the ground. You would cover the surface of the earth over 150 times. Another way to think about this and the reason why the Rubik's cube is never boring if I were to sit in the room with you and you had a bag of cubes, and this is a very large bag because you have every possible configuration, if you're able to show me a thousand cubes a second, which is pretty fast, it would still take me 1,300 million years to see every possible position. And remember, only one of those positions, one of the 43 quintillion, is the solved position. So it will never, ever be boring solving the Rubik's Cube. And that's all we have for today. You can find the show notes at healthyhacker.com slash three. If you have any questions, send me a voicemail, healthyhacker.com slash voicemail.